Hey, this is Art Woods. I just wanted to let you guys know that in an earlier version of this episode, we got Patty Brennan's academic affiliation wrong. Uh, it's fixed now. To start off this episode, which is all about sex, we're going to begin by telling you an unsexy story about cow dung. Yellow dung flies are common in the Northern Hemisphere, and true to their name, they spend a lot of time hanging around dung. Uh, the males hang around the cow patties because the females lay the eggs in the cow patties, and, and the babies, the larvae, when they hatch out, they feed on that dung, right? That's Patty Brennan, an evolutionary biologist from Mount Holyoke College who studies animal genitalia. When a cow poops, the male dung flies get there first. Usually, there are lots more males than females. So when a female finally shows up to lay eggs, the males are so eager to mate that they mob her. They're all trying to grab the few females that are showing up at the cow patty. And oftentimes, they drown the females in liquid dung. Okay? So... Wonderful. <laughs> I know. So apart from, like, g- g- getting the prize for, like, the most horrible way to die... Um, <laughs> This was, this was extraordinarily puzzling, right? Killing the female flies would be bad for everybody. If the females die, then none of the males get to mate. And that's the puzzle. How could selection result in something that's so often so lethal to females? This mating system probably came about because males and females often have conflicting interests when it comes to making offspring. Yes, we, you expect the, the uh, males and females to cooperate because they do have some things in common. But the reality is that evolutionarily... Uh, they are different, right? And so each of the each of the sexes is going to push to their advantage so that they do a little bit better than the other, and that results in conflict over everything. This is called sexual conflict, and it describes situations where males and females have competing interests. So sex isn't necessarily about love and cooperation. To reproduce, males and females need to cooperate at some minimal level, but everything else about sex is right for conflict. In this episode, we talk with Patty about how animals navigate sexual conflict. You hear a lot about the quirky mechanics of duck genitalia. And you'll find out why that's not even as weird as it gets in the animal world. We also want to give you a heads up that we'll talk a lot about sexual violence in wild animals during the episode. These behaviors occur naturally in some species, and we have to understand them if we're going to understand the evolutionary consequences of conflict. So if this makes you uncomfortable, then maybe consider skipping this episode. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Okay, if you want to study sexual conflict, Patty says there's really only one place to go. Well, yeah, I mean, for that, we can get right into into genitalia, which are, you know, the traits that I'm most interested in studying. Patty put it bluntly in an article she wrote for Slate back in 2013. She said, genitalia, dear readers, are where the rubber meets the road evolutionarily. To fully understand why some individuals are more successful than others during reproduction, there may be no better place to look. Yeah, the bottom line is that every bird that you see out there, you know, uh, most birds out of your window, all your chickadees and your cardinals and all those guys, they don't have a penis. But ducks do. And their penis is bizarre. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. So it looks kind of like a tentacle. Um, is white and it spirals uh, in a corkscrew shape. And the sperm channel is on the outside of the penis right on the, rather than on the inside. And the whole thing is powered by lymph rather than blood, which is even weirder, right? So these are bizarre penises. And then in some species, 
they can be incredibly exaggerated. They can be as long or longer than the male himself. Those bizarre penises raised an important question for Patty. If male ducks have corkscrew-shaped penises, then what the heck do female vaginas look like? But when I dissected my first female duck, I almost had a heart attack because they had an incredibly complicated vaginal structure. So what they have is um, they have a series of blind pouches followed by a series of spirals. Now, I told you that the male penis is spiral, but it spirals on a counterclockwise direction, whereas the female spirals are in a clockwise direction. So that's literally like the anti-screw device, right? It's not the lock and key, but it's like the anti-lock and key. Um, it looks as if these things were never meant to fit together in, in a way. So what are these bizarre structures telling us? Why would female ducks have vaginas that look specifically designed to foil penises? What's happening is basically an evolutionary arms race of duck genitalia. This, this war between the male and the female is really playing out in their genitals. Uh, and there are, no, there are not many occasions where I can use that phrase, but I love it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anybody say those words together. <laughs> understand why ducks have such bizarre genitals, we're going to take you to their wintering grounds, where they select mates each breeding season. Ducks are a great model for studying sexual conflict because they form definitive pair bonds. Females select a mate in winter and stick with him through the breeding season. Patty says we can think about the ducks' wintering grounds almost like bars. The males show up in full breeding plumage, and they do these dramatic displays for the females, showing off and trying to prove how attractive they are. And so then the males just start doing their thing, right? They start displaying, uh, they start, you know, laughing a little bit louder and <laughs> drinking a little more beer, you know, more whiskey, that kind of thing. So males that are a little more energetic, you know, those are the males that tend to be preferred. So they, they display, um, uh, you know, with a little more enthusiasm, if you will. Uh, maybe they learn to break dance, <laughs> whatever it takes. So um, those are things that females like. And so the females are like, okay, great. I just picked my guy. We're good. And they're going to hang out together through the winter and then they'll migrate together to the breeding grounds. So they get to the breeding grounds. And all is well, you know, paradise, they're hanging out, they're eating, they're getting ready to lay their eggs. And that's when things turn really dark. And back at the bar, there are a bunch of males who didn't get picked by females. So now those males don't have mates for the breeding season. What are they to do? Well, in some species, they do nothing. They just, you know, hang out and, and they wait for better luck next year. But in other species, those bachelor males go to the breeding grounds and look for females who are in prime breeding condition. And they literally fall down to, uh, from the sky, and then they force her to copulate. And this is pretty nasty business. Oftentimes there are groups of females, so they form like coalitions almost of, you know, five or ten males who will chase and subdue a female um, and essentially copulate with her one after the other, despite the fact that she's strongly resisting, she's trying to get away from them. Um, this is something that is very clearly not something that the female wants. So 
So yeah, so that's a you know you can you can see how that's a, a pretty perfect situation of conflict, right? From a point of view of those bachelor males, they're like, well, you know, if I don't do anything, I'm going to get zero reproductive success, and so I'm going to try to go pursue copulations with these females. From the point of view of the females, well, this is terrible news because they just spend a lot of time and effort picking a, a male that, in their view, was the their, the best guy they could get. Um, and essentially, uh, uh, you know, for whatever reason, just because they think he's, he's pretty or because he's more vigorous or, or, you know, whatever it is that's going on in her mind, she's picked this guy. And now there are these guys who are coming over and they're um, uh, sort of uh, totally acting against her choice. So from that point of view, the female um, is in direct conflict with those uh, bachelor males. In some species, this happens a lot. According to one study, up to 35% of copulations between mallards were forced. When we take a closer look at this sexual conflict in ducks, we can see how aggressive sexual behavior is driving evolutionary changes in their genitalia. I'll tell you that, you know, I, I uh, started looking at ducks uh, in which there is a situation of conflict that's very clear. And when I looked at their genitalia, I almost had a heart attack because I was like, oh my gosh, this, you know, the genitalia and the behavior really uh, kind of put the whole story together. So, Patty, can you say something about how successful this strategy is for these males that are taking this aggressive approach? I mean, is this, when you look at the offspring, are they all that related? No, so so it turns out that in species that have very high frequency of these forced copulations, when you look at the paternity, only uh, three to five percent of the offspring are actually sired by those forced copulating males. Hmm. In other words, most of the paternity still ends up going to the female's own mate. And then in uh, the situation is essentially uh, the exact same in the gadwall, which is the other species for which we have um, paternity data. So. Lots of forced copulations observed in the wild. Very small percentage of babies are actually the result of those. So the, so the females are exerting control at some other level to, to prevent the fertilization. That's exactly right. Yep. So how does that happen? Often right after these forced copulations and after the intruding males have flown off, the female's mate rushes over and he copulates with her too. Now we think that that has something to do with... Um, a feature of birds that's uh, related to how they use sperm. So birds, um, the last sperm in is the first sperm out for fertilization because females store sperm, right? And so essentially um, the idea is that, you know, she could mate with 10 males, but if the last sperm that goes in there is her own mate, then when she's going to fertilize the eggs, her mate sperm will come out first. So that's, that's one possibility. But Patty thinks there's another possibility. She thinks that the blind pouches and spiral curves in the female vaginas are thwarting the aggressive male's attempts to deposit sperm close to eggs. To figure out if that was really the case, Patty had to design a, a strange apparatus. These are hard questions to get at, I, t I tell you. So I have, I have to get really creative as to how I'm going to answer them. But what we did is we actually decided to build models of these female vaginas, okay? So Patty talked with the guy who makes glassware for the chemistry department, and she asked him to make four glass vaginas. Two of them had structures simulating real duck vaginas with blind endings and clockwise spirals. And the other two were designed to give the males easy access, either spiraling counterclockwise, like their penises, or they were just simple straight tubes. 
And we made this out of glass, and you can imagine what that conversation was like when I, I, we walked into the the guy who did all the chemistry, yeah, all the chemistry stuff, and and you know he makes all kinds of crazy glass stuff for for chemists, and and we were like, well, this is what we need. He's like, oh my gosh, you people are weird. <laughs> But he did a great job, so we, we walked out of there with our glass models. Next, Patty found a duck farm where the ducks were trained to produce sperm as part of the farm's breeding process. When the male ducks became aroused by a female and tried to mount her, Patty and her team quickly swapped the female duck for one of the glass vaginas. And what we found is that the female-like shapes, the vast majority of the time, they prevent the full aversion of the male penis. So what does that mean? So what happens is that this, this lymph is flowing in and this penis is hitting either this pouch or is hitting one of these spirals and it gets stuck and it cannot move any further. And here's where the battle of the sexes really starts to play out. In these species of ducks, penises are evolving to be longer and faster, but vaginas are evolving to be more convoluted and harder for males to navigate. We went out and we collected a bunch of uh, male and female ducks from a bunch of different species some of which have high levels of forced copulations and long penises, and others that have low levels of forced copulations and short penises. And what we found was that the complexity of the female genitalia co-evolves very, very closely with the length of the penis of the male and then the level of forced copulations that they'll do. So the more forced copulations a species will have, the more convoluted the female vagina. And vice versa. So species that are very monogamous, where there's no forced copulation going on, the males have little penises and the females have vaginas that are just a simple tube. So that was amazing because it means that, you know, these structures are really co-evolving tightly, right? So, so then we're like, okay, great. It looks like the females are evolving something here that is posing a barrier to the male penis, which is crazy if you think about that, because, you know, talk about cooperation. Like, if anything, you want to help the penis so that the sperm can get in there. And that's generally true, except if you have conditions under which sperm are getting in there that you don't want in there in the first place, right? Then you might be predicted to actually try to do everything in your power to um, get rid of that sperm. It turns out ducks aren't the only species that have this kind of sexual conflict. For example, male bed bugs, everyone's favorite have hypodermic needles that they use for injecting sperm right into the bellies of females. In response, females have evolved thicker exoskeletons to keep the males out. Some females have also developed fake openings to trick males into aiming for the wrong targets. There are similar arms races happening between males and females in many species. Uh, I joke that I'm going to get started the Vagina Research Institute, but <laughs> it's really not a joke. I think at this point it's actually true. Because what we're doing is we're looking at the vaginas of many different groups. And so we've been looking, for example, most recently at the vaginas of dolphins and finding the dolphin vaginas are crazy elaborate. Um, uh, and the story is very similar to that of the ducks, right? Human genitals are not as bizarre as duck genitals, but there are evolutionary battles between the sexes. In humans, those often play out genetically when females become pregnant. We all know that babies get some genes from mom and some from dad, but those genes don't necessarily have the same interests. Dad's genes encourage the baby to absorb lots of nutrients and to grow quickly. But mom's genes try to limit this nutrient uptake so that she has plenty of nutrients left for herself and to give to future children. When we were talking about sexual conflict in ducks, 
We also talked about the evolutionary relationships between sexual behavior and genital structures. According to Patty, if we look at our primate ancestors, we can see evidence of how this kind of sexual conflict has shaped other physical features in humans. Gorillas have, um, uh, you know, a harem uh, defense. So the male, the silverback male, he has a harem, his group of females, and then he has exclusive mating access to those females. But that means that there are a bunch of gorilla males that don't get any females, right? And so the male is going to always have to be fighting to protect his harem. And when you look at the consequence of that, you'll see that sexual dimorphism in gorillas is crazy, right? So gorilla males are enormous compared to females. We see sexual dimorphism in plenty of species. Think about animals like lions or peacocks, where the two sexes have starkly different features. In gorillas, males have huge canine teeth, and they're much larger than females. And this means that any physical manifestation of sexual conflict can get pretty violent. So in humans, for example, we know we have a lot of sexual dimorphism, and, and we know there's a lot of, of violence, and we know there's a lot of physical violence of males against females. And that physical violence is facilitated by that very same sexual dimorphism. And, you know, we know all the instances, for example, of domestic violence all over the world where males, you know, will beat up their partners. And they beat up the par their partners for evolutionarily predictable reasons, that the partner may leave them, that the partner may have high sexual value, that their partner might be, uh, uh, you know, a, a desire, potentially desirable mate. And so those are the circumstances where, where human males might beat up their their. Uh, their partners. So it's always, you know, it's always hard to, to talk about humans in this, in this biological way, because of course, you know, for somebody who has been subjected to, uh, you know, um, uh, this kind of sexual violence, it's, it's, it's horrible, right? But, but I think it doesn't, it doesn't take anything away from the fact that this is horrible. It doesn't justify it. It doesn't say, oh, it's fine because gorillas do it, right? Um, what it means though is that we can understand what our proclivities might be, and then we can work to fight those, right, and, and change them uh, with our cultural uh, abilities. But humans are different in many ways too, right, because we, we also are weird because we have biparental care. So that mitigates conflict a lot compared to what you might see in chimpanzees or, or gorillas, right, where the females are alone taking care of their offspring. In humans, they really have to cooperate because we have these babies that require a lot of care, that really thrive with biparental care. Um, and so that has also mitigated a lot of that. There is also selection on males to, to be nicer, honestly. I mean, if you were to compare a human male to a human chimpanzee, human chimp um, um, to, the, to a male chimpanzee, male chimpanzees are pretty horrible, right? In many, in many ways. And so um, that selection for, uh, you know, reduced violence and, and more cooperation has also been a part of our evolutionary history, so. As Patty said, it's uncomfortable to talk about sexual conflict, especially when it comes to humans. But sexual conflict has had a big role in the evolution of life on Earth. If you think the evolutionary arms race in ducks is interesting, make sure you listen to our full conversation with Patty to hear more about why other species have even weirder genitalia, like female hyenas and their pseudopenises. Um, the conflict is now that 
in order for this dominant behavior to uh, really take place, females have very high levels of testosterone. And so testosterone has masculinizing effects in their genitalia. You can find that conversation wherever you found this one. And you can find all of our episodes on our website, bigbiology.org, as well as Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. Stay tuned for our next episode with Joel Brown, a behavioral ecologist at the Moffitt Cancer Center. We'll talk with him about how he applies evolutionary game theory to treat prostate cancer. Thank you to the University of South Florida College of Public Health for their support. And thanks to Jana Wiegand and Matt Blois for writing and production help. Thanks also to Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey, who handle our social media channels, and to Steve Lane, who manages our website. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and Todd Barrow. Sound effects you heard were recorded by Just Kidding, Audio Hero, and Ian Cruikshank.